brought to you by Penguin. Hello and welcome to the Penguin Podcast, where you talk to all kinds of writers about writing. I'm Derek Wusu, and today I'm going to be talking to Nadifa Muhammad. Nadifa is an award-winning novelist who was born in Somaliland, and today we'll be talking about The Fortune Men, a novel focused on Mahmoud Matan, a Somali sailor who was wrongfully convicted and hanged for a murder he did not commit. This is her third novel, which was shortlisted for the 2021 Booker Prize and the Costa Novel Award. She's a brilliant and inspiring writer, and I'm so glad to be talking with her today. Welcome to the Penguin Podcast, Nadifa. It's great to have you here with us. Thank you. How are you doing today? I'm well. It's sunny. Summer's about to begin. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That feels good. Feeling good to be back in the UK after teaching abroad? Yeah, yes. Um, Britain is a really difficult place right now. It just seems as if politically, socially, everything is kind of falling apart. But it's home and it's better to be in the fray rather than watching it from far away. Being away, did it clear your head in a way? I mean, obviously, New New York is not massively different to London. It's like London times 10. Yeah, when I went, I always thought to myself, this is just like central London, just massive, yeah. basically. Yeah, and louder and more aggressive, more destitute, but also richer at the same time. A lot of information to take in for a writer. Yeah, yeah. I was hoping that I might get some writing done there, but I didn't. But I did get a lot of reading done. The first thing I wanted to ask you is like, you know, with the Fortune Men, you know, we come across a lot of stories about miscarriages of justice and institutional racism. So I wanted to ask what drew you to want to write a fictionalised version of Mahmoud's story? So it wasn't a question of looking for a miscarriage of justice. It was the other way around where I was confronted with Mahmoud's story a long time ago, just after I finished university and was working for a film company. And I saw his face in a newspaper with a double page spread on what had happened to him. And it was a really shocking case. And I think a lot of people became aware of him then. And I had a vague idea of turning his story, what had happened to him, into a film after the film job came to an end. But that didn't happen. But I was always attached to him, really. So I would keep dipping in, you know, looking on Google to see if any other information had come up. But I didn't start work on it really in earnest until 2015. So when you did start working on it, you know, I read that your father was in some way, he knew him or they had some interaction. They were both arrived in England or the UK in 1947 as sailors and they knew each other more intimately when they both lived in Hull. So my father was based as a sailor in Hull (laughs) and Mahmoud and Laura moved there for a while to get away from Cardiff and its difficulties. Did this kind of make the story feel a bit more intimate for you? For sure. The fact that this was someone so similar to my father, roughly the same age, from the same hometown... They had known each other, you know, they had seen each other at a time when there was a tiny Somali population in the UK. So each person would be much more familiar with the other migrants than they would be now. Now there's so many of us, we don't really pay attention. But there, I guess, Mahmoud's story and his fate would have really caused shockwaves across the community. Mm. So why fiction? You know, of course, the research for this book is obviously extensive. Why not work with it in a way of nonfiction? Why did you feel like you needed to fictionalise elements of it and turn it into a novel? I think it's not so much about the content and fictionalising the content. It's more about the style and how to tell the story in a way that feels right to me. Mm. Just by chance, really, 
my writing style leans more towards fiction than it does non-fiction. So my first novel is a very closely biographical account of my father's early life, but with an imaginative leap here and there to kind of really get under the skin because That's it was... Black Mamba Boy. Exactly, yes, which was published in 2010. And I had my father right there telling me his life story. So it started off as a biography, but I couldn't write it like that. I had to really imagine myself on a rooftop in Aden as a street boy, you know, being aimless and lonely in the highlands of Eritrea just before the outbreak of the Second World War. And it was a question maybe of what my own influences were as a writer. So I, I read a lot of fiction and, and travel writing and some history. But the history that I love and, you know, the books, those historical works that I really love are the ones that somehow make you feel inside the skin of these individuals that things happen to or who make things happen. So do you find it easier to write characters who have existed in real life, you know, and doing the research and having someone speaking to you? Or do you find it easier to basically have them created by you in your mind? I think maybe easy is not the right word. It's more, what do I find more satisfying? Okay. And there's a communion that you can have with someone real, whether they're around or not. So Mahmoud, you know, he died 70 years ago this year, but he feels incredibly familiar to me. It doesn't feel like he's gone. And there's a kind of almost spiritual act when you're trying to unpick the path of someone's life and the choices they made, their quirks, their intimacies, the things that they did behind closed doors, the way that they loved, the way that they hated and yes, you can have that with a fictional character. And I think Kausar in The Orchard of Lost Souls, my second novel, I did have a very intimate relationship with her and the, she could have easily taken up the whole novel. And I think I remember Toni Morrison saying that Pilot mm -hmm. in The Song of Solomon just wouldn't stop talking. And it took a lot of effort for her to sort of say, shh, hush now, mm. let these other characters speak. And I think Kausar was that for me. She wouldn't stop talking and... Yeah, I can still see her in my mind. I can still imagine what she's thinking about. So it's maybe it's a question of those individual characters, but I lean towards people who have lived and who I know quite a bit about because there's a hand-holding maybe for me as a writer in, involved in that. Oh, no, I hear that, I hear that. So are the characters at the beginning of The Fortune Men, are they still talking to you? Because, you know, there's this really kind of bubbly vibe, to, you know, <laughs> that comes across. Yeah. And it takes me back to kind of like, the atmosphere and the lonely Londoners. Do you yes, know what I mean? Yeah. Yes. And when I was reading, I was thinking to myself, I would love to read a novel just about these people just living yeah. their lives and having fun and doing this, this, that and the other. So are those, sure. some of those characters still with you? Yeah, Berlin is for sure. Mm. I know his son. His son's still in Cardiff and is the same kind of person, bubbly, has crazy stories. You know, you're just talking to him and he'll tell you about the time he was deported from the US and managed to get back in secretly within a month. Of course. Uh, yeah. So they're a very particular breed of men mostly men, and they are, you know, it's the world that I grew up in, these people. They're sadly dying more and more, but they are still around, and yeah, their voices are in my head all the time. So how did it feel taking on such a responsibility when it came to this story? Not only, you know, writing about Mahmoud, but about the family mm. of the murdered woman, I forget her name, apologies. In the novel, she is Violet Vallaki. And that name was changed, obviously. Yes, for, yeah. at the request of one of the family members. Yeah, yeah. And it still weighs on me, that responsibility, even when I do publicity, because you are opening a wound that had kind of closed and bringing attention to something which, you know, was in the public eye. You know, you can easily Google the facts of the case, but maybe art, you know, writing, whatever it may be, has a greater reach than that. 
So you are constantly keeping a wound open by talking about it. But I I do feel a responsibility to Mahmoud to join the points between what had happened to him and what continues to happen. He wasn't a unique case. In the year that he was executed, four other black and Asian men were executed when they made up a tiny proportion of the country's population. Mm. And we have, you know, even worse inequalities in the justice system right now. So it's a fine balance, I guess, of saying this is a private story and you have to respect the boundaries of people. You've got to really think about the responsibility that you have to both make a character believable and sincere, but also respect the fact that this is a real person whose secrets you don't know. You can't pretend to know those. And you end up speaking about someone with great authority, but it's your version of them rather than a purely historical one. So did that make it quite difficult for you to write the chapter where you go back to Mahmoud's life in Somaliland? I mean, how much of that was fictionalised? That was actually one of the easier chapters. Um, So he gives a very brief account of his early life to the prison doctor. You know, my mum was old when I was born and I was the youngest of four or five boys and my father had a shop and some lorries. The very bare bones. But that was quite exciting because then I could leap. And I knew that he had travelled south from Somaliland and ended up in South Africa where he joined the Merchant Navy. So I could fill in the gaps and, you know, that was a story I'd kind of written already before with my father, even though he went north rather than south. So I know these people. I know what they did. (laughs) (laughs) And I I had fun. So I took him the places I would have liked to have gone to, such as Zanzibar. And it was only in hindsight I did an event with Abdul Razak Gurner. Oh, yes, I saw. Yeah, amazing. Yeah, the Nobel Prize last year. So we spoke and... I've been rereading his work and it had a big impact on me. And probably without realising, that was a reason I wanted to take Mahmoud to Zanzibar, to Stone Town with its alleyways. And I also had used, I got a Somerset Maugham Award and I used that to go to Zanzibar just before the pandemic hit. So it was fun. That part of it was really fun. And he was a teenager and you can just imagine what a, a loose feral teenager like that is doing in the world. And his background was very different to my father's. My father had much less resources and support, but Mahmoud did have those resources, but decided to give them up and run away. And that was an interesting counterpoint. Mm. So just, I guess, carrying on with this idea of responsibility. When you were writing Mahmoud, did you in any way feel like you didn't want to emphasise his flaws too much in case the reader may then think, okay, well, he was a petty thief, perhaps he was capable of this crime. You know, I mean, obviously the writer's responsibility to create three-dimensional characters, but at the same time, it's difficult in this sense because people may be going into this already with a bias in their minds because Mm. this is a true story. Yeah. And there's also the bias that's very specifically aimed towards black men. Exactly. Of justifying harm to them. Any small thing, exactly. Exactly. They're put on trial after they're killed rather than the person who killed them. So I was aware of that, but... The other thing that tends to happen is that a black character has to be saint-like or extremely simple, uh, have a learning disability or some sort of thing going on which makes them so innocent and therefore makes the harm done to them even worse. But that's not realistic either. You shouldn't have to be angelic or non-confrontational to not have something like this, to have your life mean something. Mm. So Mahmoud's flaws are actually part of what makes him attractive, I think. And also, we're all changeable. And the person he was in 1952 was not the person he was when he had arrived in 1947. 
You know, I think his life had fallen apart in many ways. He was separated from his wife and children. He was bumming around from job to job, taking national assistance, really just having a hard life. And the choices that you make in that kind of context are very different to the choices you make when you're in work and have a, a relationship that's going well. Absolutely. So his flaws are not terrible. Maybe if he'd been a really violent man or a sadistic man, that would have made it harder to engage with him in a deeper way. But he wasn't. His his crimes were pretty petty and sometimes even a little bit funny. I do find it funny that he was charged and found guilty of stealing money from the mosque. <laughs> <laughs> Especially because of the dynamic that I found out was happening at the mosque at the time where it was kind of controlled by one faction and they were fighting with another faction and it was all pretty petty. Yeah. So him stealing a little bit <laughs> doesn't come across as a very terrible crime. So finally, before we move on to your objects that you've chosen, I've got, you know, a final question and you're probably sick of this question as well, but I want to kind of live vicariously through <laughs> you. Like, how did it feel to get shortlisted for the Booker Prize? Oh, it was a whirlwind, yeah. a real whirlwind. So you never know what's going to happen. The book came out in May, late May, I think, and you do your flurry of activity around publication and then it dies down and you start thinking ahead to the next book. And I, my mind was already there and then suddenly it was long listed for the Booker Prize and it's very exciting. To be honest, there was a lot of other things going on in my life at the time. So it became a job of managing everything, the, the sudden attention, the different little tasks you have to do, the interviews with the Times of India or a newspaper in Canada or whatever it might be. And then the shortlisting intensifies it yet again. And it's really fantastic for the book. It changes. You already think, you, you go on the radio when the book comes out, you do maybe a newspaper interview um, and you think, gosh, everyone must have heard about the book by now. <laughs> <laughs> and then the Booker Prize opens up a different level of exposure for both good and for bad. And it definitely attracted readers that probably wouldn't have found my work otherwise. Interesting. But then it also attracts, you know, that kind of Daily Mail hostility of, oh, you know, some more lefty do-gooders. <laughs> have been nominated for this prize. It doesn't mean anything. I stopped reading it after whoever won in 1985. Oh, God, yeah, yeah. Those ones. <laughs> yeah. And the worst of it actually was on the night of the award um, at the BBC, there was a protest outside, which I didn't know about at the time. For you? Yeah, against the, the Fortune Men. What? Because they said it was a racist anti-British book. Oh, goodness. Yeah, I found out about it a while later. It was like two men and a dog. <laughs> <laughs> but that was kind of, it made me think, okay, the book is definitely getting places. <laughs> I mean, they, they must have bought it and read it. They bought it and burned it, probably. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so moving on to your objects. Now, the first object you brought in is something that changed you. Can you tell us what that is? What did I say? <laughs> you said a passport. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's definitely changed the potential of my life. I travel a lot. So my father was a sailor and he went to about 100 countries and I'm wow. slowly trying to catch up with him. And somehow I feel like I've traveled a lot, but I'm only around 30 countries. Okay. But I've got more planned. So a passport means so much. It really does define so much of your life. The Windrush scandal has made me see that, you know, where you belong, where you think of as home is determined by your passport. It's determined by a bureaucracy that you have very little control over. So I have a British passport. I don't have a Somaliland passport. But that kind of tension, I guess, of who does have something and who doesn't is a defining matter for people. It's maybe something I'm thinking about a lot in the novel that I'm working on now, where the family have moved to the UK 
a long time ago, you know, three decades ago. And now they're in contact with the family who stayed in Somaliland for various reasons and all of the tensions and responsibilities that that throws up. What is it about travelling? This is probably going to sound like a ridiculous question, but what is it about travelling that fascinates people so much? Because whenever I'm talking to someone and they're like, oh, I love travelling, I just don't understand it. I really? don't get it. No, I don't get it at all. Why not? Because I feel like, you know, you find a home and you stay there. Why? Because you can read, <laughs> you know. But planes are really good for reading. I mean, planes also crash. <laughs> very rarely, very rarely. You're probably more likely to get blown up in your own house. Yeah, than fair enough. Be in yeah. a plane crash. I think there's a meditative thing that I really love about traveling. It's it stops me obsessing about the everyday routine things that get in our minds. I think I'm too easily stressed, and when I travel, I put that stress on hold. And I'm overstimulated by the new things that I'm seeing and eating and doing and, you know, the, the different smell in the air. Mm. So sometimes it's for research, uh, Zanzibar or Djibouti or somewhere like that, or somewhere it's pure pleasure. I went to Mallorca last year to get away from everything. But you have to remember that I'm also from a nomadic background. So all of us, you know, whether it was on foot, on a camel, on a plane, we're people who travel. Mm and get a sense of our lives and who we are from that travel to the degree that it's really difficult to know where home is. I think you said you can just stay home and read, but sometimes home doesn't feel as clear-cut as that. Yeah, and I was going to ask traveling you that. Can, yeah. Being on the move can feel like home. So there's no place that... So, for example, when you go to one country, you don't get to a point where you're like, I want to go home and know where that place is you want to go back to. London is home in very many practical ways. When I get to Heathrow, <laughs> then my mobile data comes back on and there's some stupid news about the Tory party or whatever. I'm home. <laughs> That's what it feels like. But maybe I'm now becoming less and less committed to the idea of the UK as home. Interesting. Mm. Okay. Do you know why that is? Mm. It's got so miserable and so cruel. You know, one of the reasons I was quite happy to come back from New York was the lack of a social safety net is really visible there. You step out onto the street and someone is shoeless, sprawled out on the ground, often black men, mental health issues, just really, really terrible situations that you just see in this rich city. And you think, God, let me get back to London and its health system and its dole, <laughs> mm. whatever, whatever it has just to keep people from that situation. But then we do have it here. You get more and more tense up on the streets. The NHS is really, really struggling. I'm thankful at the moment that no one in my family needs it because I don't trust it to give good care, which is really scary to say. So I'm wishful that there's some sort of more idyllic, more restful place out there. Mm. No, I feel you. I feel you. OK, so moving on to your second object, and that's something you can't get rid of. So, yes, this is a ring that I made from a ring that my father had, and I remember him wearing it for a really long time. And it's got a black stone, a spinel, inside, and he got the stone, maybe the whole ring, in Cuba in the late 50s when he was there as a sailor. And I think it might be the same journey where he turned up in Cuba and it was in the middle of the revolution and Fidel Castro was in Havana, you know, doing his eight-hour speeches and my dad was one of the few foreigners walking around and... He had this really incredible memory of entering the Hilton in Havana, which was one of those segregationist hotels where only white people were allowed, generally Americans. 
and they weren't there. They'd fled. And instead, this empty hotel was now just sort of at the service of my father. And he walked in to the bar and the, the orchestra started playing for him. And I think he loved it all. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> so that would have been in 58 or 59, something like that. So that spinel was part of my childhood. I remember seeing it on his fingers. And then I went to Hargeisa and he let me get it made into a ring of my own by a jeweller in Hargeisa. And I actually wore that to the Booker Prize ceremony as a sort of good luck charm. That's a lovely story. Mm -hmm. So you, you wear it all the time? I don't actually. I, oh. I hardly ever wear it because it's quite big. It's bigger than my normal jewellery. And I feel like I don't want to lose it. I don't want it to break. So I keep it at home most of the time. Right. Okay. So moving on to your third item, which is a happy place for you. I, I know what I said, which is really lame. <laughs> it, it, it's a spa. I mean, it's not lame. It's nice and relaxing. It's pretty, it's pretty lame. Um, I thought I, you would have said a country, maybe. A particular a spa country. in any country. Oh, a spa in Okay, fair enough. <laughs> yeah, I think because I'm craving it right now. I just want to veg out in some water with some steam get a massage, have these knots kind of pushed out of my body. It's been a heavy three weeks. I've only been back, I think, in the UK three weeks, and it's just really been one thing after the other. So I'm just imagining somewhere where I don't have to get on a plane, don't have to really do anything. I just sit there and veg out. Is that like part of your self-care routine where you go to a spa? Yes, I don't do it enough, but I do feel relaxed. You know, you feel your heart rate go down, your limbs kind of loosen and it's, that's what it's there for. And, you know, it's something that humans started doing really early in human history. And you see those macaques in Japan sitting in those hot spas. <laughs> oh, right. Yes, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. And you think, yeah, there's something immediate and necessary about this. Yeah, yeah. Is there any kind of particular thing that you like having done in the spa? Like, for example, we had Alison Hammond on a couple yeah. of weeks ago and she was talking about sitting in the jacuzzi. And it is the jacuzzi. It is I the agree jacuzzi. with Alison. Okay. Yeah, it's okay. being in that hot, soupy, bubbling water. Right, right. And okay. just you don't have to do anything. Like with the sauna, it can get too hot. So you have to kind of monitor so it doesn't get too hot. But the jacuzzi can just sit there for hours. Right. I'm, I'm definitely missing out, man. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> There's two people tweaking about spas. And I haven't been, I've never been to a spa. Oh, you have to. Yeah. You really have to. No, I do. I do. Treat yourself. Yeah, why not? Um, okay, so moving on to your fourth item now, which is something you bought for yourself. Oh, yeah. This is even cheesy. I sound so cheesy. What is it? This is a car. I remember you posting that car on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> I remember that I saw it. That was a gangster move. <laughs> it's not that fancy. It's actually 11 years old, maybe even 12 years old now. But I, I like cars. There's something nerdy about me and cars. And I remember when I went into a local newsagent to buy Auto Trader. <laughs> oh my God, that's still around. It was around then. Okay. Um, and the guys were just laughing at me. But I take looking for cars really seriously. I feel like I'm a connoisseur now. And I've got friends who advise me about, you know, oh, be careful of this type because of this and that. And, you know, the engine size and the rattle and blah, 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 blah. So I took ages to find my car. And it was a treat. It was a post-publication treat mm -hmm. <laughs> or pre-publication treat, in fact. And it's a convertible. So I think it's fulfilling all of my 11-year-old fantasies of living in L.A. with the top-down sun out, playing my music, not being a writer, being <laughs> <laughs> someone very shallow. And that whole thing of, you know, people smile at you. I remember when I got my car and I drove it with the top-down for the first time and this African guy stopped and he was like, wow, <laughs> wow. <laughs> And yeah, you get much more interaction. 
You know, it's, it's interesting. My friend was actually saying this to me a couple of days ago that when he had his, he had a BMW convertible. Yeah. And he said he just got used to get so much respect <laughs> being in that car. And then he had, to, he had to sell it and he got, a, I think he bought a Peugeot 206. Oh, come on. Yeah. And he come said on. that driving, yeah. he was so used to people giving him way that he keeps nearly getting into crashes <laughs> because no one's respecting him on the roads yeah. anymore. Yeah. I had yeah. a bashed up VW Beetle before, 20 year old car and people they didn't give me any respect on the road mm. and now even though it could accelerate really fast that car and this one is a two litre engine when it goes it goes what is that what is, I have no idea what the terms mean <laughs> so the size of the engine influences the power of the car okay so a small engine like a one point you know 1.1 litre you're going to have to put your foot really down really hard to get going and my car you don't a little touch and you zoom off okay especially at green lights mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so yeah it's funny how these interactions really change because London roads are really aggressive. People can be really rude and mean, especially as a woman, especially as a Muslim woman. I think a lot of Islamophobic abuse happens on the road. But maybe there's something about me with my turban in the convertible <laughs> 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 that intimidates people. Um, it makes them say, wow. Yeah, yes. Interesting, interesting. That is quite interesting, actually, because I remember I ordered an Uber once and my order driver was a Muslim woman yeah. with a hijab. And I yeah. remember thinking, wow, that's nice. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yes. It's because it's something you don't see very often. Yeah. And it's interesting, the dynamic of BMWs had a reputation when I was growing up of being for show-offs and all the rest of it. And what you're entitled to, I think cars bring up a sense of people's resentment and why is that person in that car? You know, my car is not very fancy at all, but, you know, you, the police stop you. If your car is too nice, and they don't stop me because my car's not that nice. <laughs> <laughs> but if your car is too nice as as a black person, they want to know why you have it. Yeah. You know, who are you to have this car? And it makes me think about Mahmoud and, you know, the importance he gave to style and looking good and treating yourself, allowing yourself nice things. Mm. There is a political aspect to it. And I'm, I'm not going to, you know, dress up my car as a political act. But there is something under the surface, which is interesting. Yeah, I was going to say, where does that sense of style come from? You know, because reading about you describing the way he dresses and whatnot reminded me of the, the sappers. Yeah, from, in, you know, in, the, in from, DRC. Yeah, yeah, the, from Congo. And that's obviously a political expression. You know, that subculture is, is an expression of we're going to make the most of the situation that we're in. Is it the same for... For Somali men as well. Yeah, I think going back to the 40s and 50s, where they came as labourers, the worst paid out of everyone. You know, they were only here because they could be paid so little. But to turn that small income into a dangerously beautiful look that made your blackness and your masculinity somehow sharper, somehow more threatening, was an act of defiance, I think, an act of self love and also these were young men away from their families away from the limiting impact of their families and, the, and their communities back home wherever back home was so to be sexy you know to have sex appeal to to girls here women here and for them to see oh my god you know his coat is so stylishly cut and you know so expensive he's meant to be forbidden to me but oh he's attractive mm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's a story i tell a lot but in the 20s i think or maybe the 1910s the chief constable of cardiff wanted to ban black men from wearing cricket whites because they just looked too good and they were annoying and distracting wow. um, to their wives and to their daughters so it was a big thing. I've never heard that before. Wow. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Too much style, man. Too much yeah. style. 
Um, <laughs> okay, so moving on to your final item, which is a favorite song. Yes, and I've picked Stars Fell on Alabama by Louis Armstrong and Ella Fitzgerald. Yes, now why did you pick that song in particular? I love them. I love their voices. I love their histories. Both Ella and Louis were in Borstals as young people. They were swept into that really exploitative, cruel system, which still exists, of young, not not just young, but black people being controlled and owned by the state. And they both came out of that system, not just unbroken, but with this talent that would go across the world, that would last for decades, that would make people love them and love African-Americans. And through that, maybe even love America. I remember Kurt Vonnegut saying that the only thing that makes America lovable is African-Americans. It's their jazz, it's their sports, it's their style, which has been the best uh, export for the US. And being in New York, I would agree. One thing I miss about New York is the older black guys who would comment on my outfits every day (laughs) (laughs) and let me know if I was on a good track or not. And that friendliness and that feeling of being looked out for and, you know, the, the number of destitute people who still could share a kind word with you and not ask for anything back. That was something that really struck me and made me love them, you know, not their situation, but to love them. So I remember playing an album by Louis and Ella to my nieces when they were very young because they often have a lullaby quality. There's a sweetness, a softness to these songs that's so gorgeous. And my nieces picked up on them and then could recognise their voices on the radio and things like that. So it's something that I've passed on. You know, Louis Armstrong's voice is very similar to my father's despite them coming from very different places. They both have a growly, deep voice. So I can relax. Their voices are like being somewhere soft, somewhere home-like. Well... Thank you, Nadifa Mohammed. It's been great talking to you. Thank you, Derek. Um, wish we could continue, actually. So The Fortune Men is out now in paperback. Mm-hmm. So everybody go pick that up. Thank you. Thank you out there, whoever you are, for listening. And The Penguin Podcast will be back in two weeks. Don't forget to subscribe and make sure you never miss an episode. And you can leave us a review too and help get the word out. And finally, as ever, if you want to find out more about the podcast or Nadifa's work, go to penguin.co.uk forward slash podcast. I'm Derek Owusu and I'll see you again.